The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm going to need some help from probably, most likely, some of the teenagers in the room. So we've got Roger and Caroline. Did Caroline leave? I start preaching and she leaves. <laughs> Maybe some of, the, some of the choristers. What is the sourest, the most sour candy that's out there right now? Warhead. The warhead? Yeah. Or what? Toxic waste. <laughs> yeah, that's leveling up. This ancient proverb, the parents eat sour grapes and the children, children's teeth are set on edge. Right, this is poetry, it's a you know, proverb, it's full of imagery and it's supposed to sort of create in you kind of an image. Do you get the vibe of this proverb? I think it's one that we're all really familiar with just in sort of pragmatically speaking, both as former children or current children and parents, right? The parents do something but it's really the child who suffers. And so I want to sort of give you an, an invitation. Uh, this passage in Ezekiel, um, if you look at it, the way that the, the people who shaped the lectionary have, have presented it to us, they've taken a, a big chunk of it out. Go read that this afternoon. That'll be interesting to you. But the, but the concept is the same, and it was really fascinating. There's so many places particularly in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, where there's a strangeness to it. And so for us with modern sensibilities, you know, sort of post-enlightenment, the scientific age that we live in, we have to do some kind of churning of the story to kind of make it rele relevant to us as modern people. And yet this one sort of contains a modern wisdom in an ancient context. It's the, it's the idea of not repeating the cycle that the parents may have put into place. I say this often to the students at school, the kind of parents that your, yours are, uh, unless you're very intentional and very thoughtful about trying to change the pattern, is going to pretty much be the style of parenting that you use. And I've seen this in myself as well. There's things that I've always said, I think when I was younger, I will never do that as a father or as a parent. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I've had a fair share of therapy in my life, and I promise you that this sermon is not going to be an extension of that. Sometimes it is. <laughs> but I know from uh, sort of being in that relationship and trying to do work on me, right, in my relationships, that there is sort of a whole, in the whole discipline of, ther of therapy, trying to determine how it is that people change. How do you change? What's the mechanics of it? And one of the most prominent in that array of approaches or theories is called cognitive behavioral therapy. Right? If you can change the way that you think about something, that your behavior is going to follow. And I think the inverse of that also is an interesting question. And it's also, you know, there's a variety of approaches to therapy that sort of embrace the opposite. If you change what you do, then your thinking will follow. 
also known as fake it till you make it. <laughs> Do the thing, and then the change will come afterward. Jesus is encountering people like me, religious leaders, and they're doing their job. Let's be fair to them. They're asking the question, why should we listen to you? Are you legitimate? Because he was very extraordinary, and I think it raised their concerns. And part of their job is to be gatekeepers, to make sure that nobody's doing something that's going to be hurtful to the people who are listening. And so they want to know about his credibility. And Jesus' response to them, that you hear it, he tells the story of these, his father with two sons, and one son he says, um, I want you to do this thing, and he says, I will not do it, um, but then he goes and does it anyway. And then the other son says, of course, Father, I'll go do the thing, and then he ends up not doing it, and Jesus asks, which one is better? And his answer, the son who does the thing. Right? Behavior cognitive saying something versus doing something. In the major world religious traditions, this has become a prominent question. What's, is it important that you feel it when you do it? Or is it, is it more important to just do the right or the good thing? I want you to think about that for just a few minutes. Yesterday we gathered in the East Garden uh, to celebrate the Feast of St. Francis. And it was an invitation to our community to bring your animals, to have them blessed. Uh, St. Francis is one of those figures in our tradition that uh, his, his life and his work has taken on mythical proportions. Um, one of the, the sayings that's attributed to him, it's pretty dubious about whether he says this, is preach the gospel always, and when necessary, see, you guys have heard it. This could be a lie, because St. Francis certainly was a preacher, and he recruited people to follow him and to preach the gospel, to speak about the behaviors and the ways of living in relationship to each other and to God that have good news and God's grace in them. Um, he was born a person of privilege. He had generational wealth that was sitting there waiting for him and he rejected it. He did not want that life. And he saw that all over in Italy there were churches that were just falling apart. They were uh, you know, crumbling. And so this was the, the vision that God gave him. I'm gonna recruit other people and we're gonna go out and we're gonna rebuild these churches and make them you know, presentable so people can come and hear the good news in them. And so there is certainly that aspect of God doing something it really raises the question for you. This is what I want to leave you with thinking about today. As you often picture and imagine the person that you wish you were becoming, as you deal and you grapple with those things in your life that feel toxic or destructive to yourself and to other people, what is the mechanism? How is God at work in your life to shift you and to move you? Did you hear at the end of that Ezekiel passage, he says, get a new heart and a new spirit. Easier said than done. And yet, we are called into this mystery of change. 
there's the, this big theological word of being saved by God. And for most of us, you know, a lot of Episcopalians come from the evangelical world and move into the liturgical sacramental world of the Episcopal Church. And we hear about salvation. And we usually associate that salvation with what happens to us after we die. There's other words, though, that are mapped into that, interwoven. This word sanctification. Um, this really talks about how are we changing and becoming more loving and more sacrificial now. How are we becoming now? Again, it's the question, what should my approach be? Should I be just getting to work and that the Spirit of God is going to be active, moving in the things I'm doing and is going to be helping my mind and my spirit, the things I think, my interior catching up, is going to catch up to those behaviors? Or is it about finding the right things that we're supposed to study and know and, you know, learn, right, and internalize. And if we do that, well, then our behavior will follow and catch up. I think it would be silly to do a one or the other. But that would be a false dichotomy. Right? It really is about figuring out the way that God is moving in your life in an interior way. And that may be God just simply wanting you to find something that you need to do that is good news to somebody or to yourself. And then in the doing of the thing, you will begin to develop and be given a new spirit and a new heart. I want to end today by um, asking you as you leave this place um, to think about St. Francis, about the doing of things and the thinking of things, um, faking it till you make it. And know this, that there is good news that the way God is at work in your life is not one way. It's not even a few. It's a mystery. But do the work. Do the work in an interior way of trying to find what are those good ideas and healthy ideas that have good news and grace in them and dwell on those things. This passage in Philippians, here what he says, have the same mind as Christ. Oh, okay. <laughs> How does that happen? And then if you look at the text, it moves from a paragraph form into the shape of what looks like a poem. This was a song. It was one of those early hymns that somebody was writing. And I don't know about you, but one of the ways that my interior moves is through art and music, right? the gestalt of that. Paul was writing this letter from prison, and the word that he uses more than any other word in this short letter is the word joy. Be joyful. distance between the head and the heart is 12 inches. God, move in our midst. Kindle in us your goodness. Give us the courage to launch out and to just to work. And in the midst of that, we will be changed and we will be created. 
the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.